I'm Claudio Pistolesi, you're listening to Functional Tennis Podcast. Welcome to the Functional Tennis Podcast. I'm your host, Fabio Molle. This week, I speak to coach Claudio Pistolesi. Claudio's love of tennis really shines through with his passion and enthusiasm of the game. Claudio tells us about his playing days, starting with a match against Pete Sampras, of all people, learning so much from Monica Seles as her hitting partner, and his many years coaching many great players, including Soderling, and he tells us what he's up to more recently. Passion is one word to describe Claudio and this episode. Before we start, a shout out to our podcast sponsor, Slinger, who make the awesome portable ball machine, the Slinger Bag. If you have any questions about it, just reach out to me. I'm an avid Slinger user and happy to answer your questions. You can also head over to their website at slingerbag.com to get all the info. This week, I'm actually at the AMG Future Stars event in Greece with 48 of the world's best under 12s. I'm hoping to interview Max Eisenbutt, the super agent from IMG who managed Lena, Sharpova and many other great players. Hopefully it happens and stay tuned for it next week. But for today, here's Claudio. Claudio, welcome to the Functional Tennis Podcast. How are you? Thank you. uh, I'm fine and I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Great. Well, can't wait to hear all about you. Before we get started, you are the original Pistol. It was Pistol Pete took your name. How did that come about? Yes, that's happened uh, when uh, I played Pete Sampras. It was a big event in Rome before the ATP final at that time called Masters. And they had the event called Big Four. And uh, it was the top four player in the world. So it was Sampras, Manisevic, Edberg and Boris Becker. Maybe you're going to ask what, what you have to do with that. I was there as, as a practice partner. And uh, Boris Becker, last moment, that was in Rome, my city. In 20,000 people, full um, arena where they normally play basketball and uh, they put me on court because Barry Becker had a fever was was sick so I went to play at not much practice on on very fast indoor court I was more of a clay court player and just to make uh, Pete calm down and not kill me I said hey Pete you know I'm the original pistol because my last name is Pistolesi and I'm three years older than you so he was smiling and he maybe was relaxed a little bit the match and three and two but it was, was with dignity, elastic dignity. And from this moment, he told his coach, Ting Alexson, now uh, that then he passed the, the, to the Tom Alexson. He still called me, ah, hi, original, how you doing? I was called the original pistol. That's what's happened. <laughs> That's great. At what stage was Pete Sampras? He's top four. How old was he? What was it like playing Pete? It was an unbelievable experience, especially on returning. You know, I felt something. I never, you know, I played, for example, Boris Becker three times. I never felt like this on return. I held the feeling he had the third eye in the back of his head because, you know, he was feeling that at any time, you know, I was trying to move somewhere, he was systematically serving to the other side that aced me even with the second serve. So the coordination skills he had on serve, I think, is the best ever. And uh, I felt on my skin how it was, how hard it was the return it was unbreakable. Also, I experienced to to uh, to coach players against Pete Sampras. For example, in the Queens, uh, I was coaching David Sanguinetti. He was a great junior with David for nine years coaching him. He played uh, unbelievable that tournament. David it was one of the best return in the world. It was, of course, much better than me, but that was not difficult. But he was in semi final and lost seven six seven six to Pete. But he also was ace. 
badly with the second serve. You know? So this is something Sampras should be revived. You know, after Sampras came at the, the big four, but Pete Sampras is a champion that um, I think deserves to be shown and told to the young players. Yeah, it's definitely. What player serves closest to his abilities right now? Would Federer be the closest, or does anybody else? You mean on serve? Yes, probably, probably. You know, I never played Roger, but I have many players played against him, and he has uh, one of the best serve in the world. Out to see him back, and that's a weapon. He still, I think, he still was able to do what he did in 2017 and 18, back to number one because of his serve. And I think there are similarities on uh, hiding. You know, it's not the fastest, but it's a good lesson for the young. But you know how to hide the last moment to use your wrist and and to to put off the returner by uh, you know hiding and and the change direction and spin at the last moment do you think in the juniors not enough of them work on that one particular feature of having the same ball toss i think in general in, in tennis schools there is a lot of you know you begin the training with the uh, hitting and play rallies but uh, i think that's one part of the of the point i think every coach has to be an observer of the reality the reality is that most of the points are, are decided in the first three shots so you want to really give uh, time or energy of serve and the other phase of the medal is the return or the serve plus one one shot or return plus one shot i think it's uh, still also the habit to have the serve at the end of the practice you know which i don't know in general that's what i see i try to change these habits and have uh, practicing serve at the beginning or at least in the middle of the practice also to show to visualize to the to the young players the importance of these situations, you know, actually, I like to practice situations. I don't like to practice shots, you know, because you know that's that's more realistic when you when you go to play the match, and that's our job to prepare the kids to be ready for the match. That's that's a nice point regarding the serve moving it forward in the practice session. And you played Pete, you played Boris Becker. Who was the toughest opponent you ever played against? Well, I, again, I have, I have to mention uh, the, this 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 sense of uh, not have the really. The, the, the beginning of how to think to beat the opponent was against Sampras. I think uh, Pete Sampras is the toughest play, uh, player I ever played. Uh, it was it was called exhibition, a word I never liked it, but I like to call it an event, you know, because when in front of 20,000 people in television, you don't think, you don't feel it's an exhibition. <laughs> you feel that you really want to look good and try to yeah. do anything to do what you want to win. Also, for, for him, it was the warm-up for the, for the ATP finals. I think it was 1992. So Pete Sampras, I, I also felt uh, uh, Boris Becker is my age. We were born in 67, so we played as a junior. And then we played in Kitzbühel, for example, as a professional. So, so I was really so far f- to to win the match or to start to think how to win the match. But but with Sampras, it was even worse. Okay. And you were number one junior in the world. Yeah. And what was your ATP tour ranking? Well, I think I was in the top 200 when I won, and I beat uh, I beat uh, Bruno Oresar in the final of uh, Orange Bowl, which I think he was much higher than me ATP. I think he was like near top 100. That time, you have to think that the average of top 100 in the men's was 20 between 23 and 24 years old. So when you're 18, you're very close already to do everything you have to get your peak. And the junior tournaments in that year, 85. I also got twice quarterfinal ATP event, what 
you will call 250 now, you know. So I beat Sergio Casal, which is 51 in the world, for example, and, and, and many other results. I won the De Galea Cup, which many don't know, was a next-gen Davis Cup on under 21. You know, I mean, uh, we Italy played in Vichy, the, the final four with the, with the Czechoslovakia at the time, with Marian Vajda, Karel Novacek, Peter Korda, oh. and the United States in the final, you know, with Brad Pierce, Luke Jensen, Richie Nenenberg. So it was, it was a little Davis Cup next-gen, we won it. And all those guys were already very high in the ATP. I mean, Vida was, I think, top top fifty. The junior level was uh, was different, honestly. So you think the junior level is a lot higher than it is now? Yeah, I think you you really by far by the numbers and by the perception we had, uh, because simply not that we was better players, but was earlier need of being strong of being uh, strong not only physically but also morally and to be there and. You you can mention now Alcaraz that that is a still almost last year was a junior, but there are, in average we had maybe twenty or thirty of us that were very competitive. The generation born in 67, 60, 68, uh, competitive in, in the ATP events already. And when did you start moving into coaching? Well, it was a natural transition where I was still playing and I started coaching. I had inside myself the vocation, and I think the job of of coaching is. Uh, is a supporting profession like a doctor. So you feel inside that you want to support. I was still playing. I was trying to make a comeback after an injury. And the two happened, two things happened in my life that I, uh, I almost at the same time, you know, I met a man- manager of uh, Takao Suzuki. He's a player from Japan that he was, uh, he was, ju- was junior. And I was asked to, to help him even I was still a player. And then uh, I knew that my playing career was ended. I was 29 years old. I said yes, but I opened the door to another profession as a player. Meanwhile, I got a call from Monica Sales. That was, I never forget. I it was totally unexpected because she was also coming back from, you know, from the stabbing. Mm. And, and she, after two years, she needed some, uh, some good practice partner. You know, the, the women has the option to practice with men's. And we, uh, we were friends. We were practicing together even when I was top 100 as a men's player. And she always appreciated that. But for me, it was great because I would play with her and she was keep up with me, no problem on, on, the, on training. So she remembered that, I guess, and she called me. And then I was turning myself in coaching with Suzuki and practice partner. But, you know, practice partner number one in the world is disgusting luck uh, as, a, as a first step to start a coaching career. So much I learned from her just simply by playing with her every day for hours and hours for two years. What did you learn from her? Well, I learned this uh, mentality of uh, number one. You know, she was not give up one second. She was focused. She was very well balanced. She was uh, taking as a mission. And uh, she she was more coaching, you know, practicing. I was more uh, absorbing things. My, my offer was to the level of tennis as a man. And I was still top 200, I think. So I could, I could give very good level to her. I think also that time the biggest rival was Steffi Graf. So I think she likes that my style of game was not so far from Steph. You know, I have really big forehand and, and I will start to slice my back in a lot. So I think she had some similarities. I was wondering if I have to put some uh, blonde wig on, but uh, it didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think that she was focused on, on beating Steffi and, and I was the very close uh, example how she could find with uh, playing Steffi. Not only that, of course, we had many other champions, but we all know the big rivalry, one of the biggest in the history of tennis between Monica Seles and Steffi Graf. 
So it was a very exciting time. I was very, very lucky again. And was all our practice sessions when you were with her, was the sole dedication, what do we need to do to beat Steffi Graf? Well, we ne- she never mentioned Steffi Graf, but uh, that was my feeling that it was important at some point to be p- prepared. And this happened to play against Steffi. We didn't do specific things, but simply my game was fitting for this also, for this purpose. But it was very early morning. You know, what I learned is the player many likes to play early mornings. It's more silent around you. You know, if it's summer, the weather is more fresh. There is less uh, distractions and it's easier to get a court to yourself. You know, the tournament is always an issue when you have to practice a lot, you know, and that she likes to play the first week of the tournaments in the slams a lot, you know, because most of the time there are matches where one and all in, in 45 minutes. So she needs to practice fully even the day of the match. So was early practice, a lot of return, talking back to what we said before, a lot of return. She was the best shot return, so I had to serve hundreds of serves every day. The atmosphere on court was was great. You know, it, was, it was always with a smile. Her dad was the coach. You know, and, uh, unfortunately, at some point, he, he got sick. But uh, he was uh, Carol. He was a friend of mine. He was very funny you know, and, and uh, an adorable person like, like your mom. And so I, I had a great feeling with all our family. And uh, so it was was really good. It was uh, a lot of learning about the mentality of to be a number one that later on in my coaching career was helping me a lot. And I think Serena Williams is another one of these players who gets up early, practice, gets it done early at the Grand Slams and likes to, before the rush gets there, she's out of there. Yes, it's, I think it's many and uh, one trick to understand uh, who is going to go far if you can wake up like a five or six and go first. You can see who is practicing most of the time. The one who is practicing in the beginning uh, the tournament, you know, before the tournament, you see the practice seven o'clock are the same that are going to go far in the tournament. You know, in Australia, coming from Italy, I have jet lag, you know, so I was awake at three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning, so nothing to do. I go to the, to the site. And and, uh, and I, I discover and, and somebody noticed that and they said that ah, but you you know I I lied I I was there because of jet lag but I said yeah. that was my choice to <laughs> to say no you know I'm studying and uh, uh, I realized but then I realized for example I see every morning Tony Roach you know I'm even over sixty practicing at seven o'clock in the morning and he was the only one to be there before me and I say Tony you you're early early bird you know you come very early. Say, hey, man, I stay out of trouble. You know, so he likes to be there on court early morning. So a lot of a lot of champions and even coaches, they like early morning training. I said this is one one of the things I learned from Monica. Tell us, who else have you coached in your coaching career? Well, long list. I mentioned the great experience, also culturally, uh, like this meeting of culture with Takao Suzuki from Japan. He was number one Japanese, and he played some. Uh, Remarkable matches. Many re- remember the match second round of Australian Open against Roger Federer. It was a spectacular match. He was the pure serve and volley player. And as a player, I had nothing to do with serve and volley. So it was a great experience to put in front who you who you coach. You no, know, you don't want to make mini you as as a coach. You want to emphasize the the weapon, the the, the your player coaching they have. So Tagao Suzuki was incredible journey personally. Humanly, and as an example, now as a coach for others, how two nothing more far than Roman from Italy with a Japanese, and and also he didn't speak English, so I teach him English also. <laughs> so now we have a Japanese speaking English with Italian accent. But now I call him my Japanese brother. He's a great coach, and and it's a beautiful story. This is this is really my heart. This story with Takao Suzuki coaching. I coach after that. Uh, 
David Sanguinetti, as I mentioned, for nine years. He was uh, best ranked at 33 years old. He won Milan in 2002, beating Roger Federer in the final. And he won uh, Derek Beach, beating uh, Andy Roddick in the final, okay. that time number three in the world. So David Sanguinetti, you know, we had, we had great matches. Many remember playing against the Xi Japan in the center on uh, what is the Armstrong now in the US Open, 7-6 in the fifth. After more than five hours, it was uh, one of the best matches of edition 2005. Then I coached Anna Smashnova from Israel, that she's the best player, men and women from Israel. She was started with me in 130. She finished number 15. She played the WTA finals uh, in, uh, in Los Angeles. At that time, the WTA finals was 16 players. She lost to Serena Williams at that time, 2002. It was a magic year for me. She won four WTA titles. And that uh, was an incredible journey with Anna. Then... Uh, I coach uh, others like uh, George Bustle, Attila Savolt, uh, that they all did really well. They all did the best ranking. So that was I was very lucky to have uh, to have players that have good empathy with me. And uh, you survive in the tour, you know, Marco. If you win, you know, as a private coach, so you are condemned to win. And and I had to win for twenty more years <laughs> with uh, with the huge support of the players, you know, because. <laughs> I met many coaches uh, where I learned from my life, uh, tennis life, and one was Bob Carmichael from Australia. He told me things I would never forget. Uh, he was he was coaching at top level. He's the one who raised uh, Rafter and Hewitt, and and he coached the uh, Pais Bupati when at the top they were number one doubles in the world. He told me, you know, to be a good good coach, you need to choose good players. That's <laughs> that. <laughs> And, and but if is there other meaning in this uh, presumably obvious sentence? But there's other meaning that. So I always choose good players, and and uh, especially through the empathy. You know, maybe the, this is uh, a natural that you need uh, an empathy. I think I'm good at that, and that's the foundation to have a successful job as a as a coach. And you did you did some work with Sutherland. Yeah, then uh, I I took a pause because it's a long list. Uh, <laughs> uh-huh. Before Sutherland, I coach uh, Simone Bolelli. Okay. Simone Bolelli was from 248 exactly to 36 in the world. And uh, it's sad how we had to finish because, you know, I had a bad experience with the Italian Federation. I have to say, unfortunately, that, that time, at that, uh, I start to feel how the politics start to interfere sometimes on, on the pure sportive tennis. And uh, I don't want to repeat all the all the story that was fantastic until some point three and a half years of joy and, and winning and, and happiness and to, to build a fantastic career that was interrupted and the 22 years old uh, Simone has the best ranking and always forever been by far the best ranking so something went wrong after we finish it was uh, was sad uh, to finish but I want to remember the great journey we had you know with Simone he did uh, important matches he got the final to Mano de Pedra Gonzalez in uh, Munich, 7-6 in the third, uh, you know, the play lost the final uh, and many, many matches. He, he beat, uh, after that, Gonzalez in Wimbledon. Was was one of the best win of Italians in Wimbledon, as in. Then uh, I coached uh, a great person like Michael Berrer from Germany. Okay. That, that yeah. he was also going from 150 to 41. He twisted an ankle right before the, the grass season where he was good. So I, I thought he was going to go to 30 for sure. Another good sign of a good of coaching the good stories is that you stay friend with the, with the player that you coach, and then uh, 
And then you have really a great uh, human relation, even after that you stop coaching him. Not always happened, but most of the time happened to me. And after Perer, yes, I got a call from number five in the world, Robin Soderling, which also I will never forget. And the story, why he chose me, I mean, the only known Swedish coach ever he ever had, is it's incredible and meaningful that it gives me goosebumps every time I, I think about it. Uh, this I only find out, uh, you know, Robin was 2000, uh, end of 2010, he called me. I was number five in the world. And I told to him and the goal, we made the goal setting to go number one or win slams. I think that's the only goal setting you can have. <laughs> we had a fantastic start at the beginning of 2011. He won uh, Brisbane, beat Roddick in the final. Then he lost the round of 16 for Dolgopolov, which he played insane tennis. And then uh, he won two more ATP events in Rotterdam. It's a big one, 500, beat Song in the final. He won uh, Marseille, beat uh, uh, Chile in the final. Plus two Davis Cup match won. He won, I think, uh, nearly 20 matches, lost one. We then got to Tolko Polov. So he won three ATP in a row because, you know, Stan Open is not ATP. So it was a great journey. I was trying to work with him more on the mental part and on uh, tactical, you know, to go more to the net, you know, because he's with weapon. I think he could capitalize more points, just simply go to the net and put the ball away. And it was, it was working really well. I think we had a great start to have better balance, to have this uh, incredible internal power that is one end it was his strengths, but in one end it was limiting when he was to when he needs to go to all the way to number one. Then he went through some injuries, uh, and we disagree about how to deal with injuries. I can say all these things because he said publicly, you know, next to me, he invited me to to, to a stage. Uh, to tell his story here in Florida, where I live, is uh, inviting me to to tell the story. And I was saying before, why choose me? You know, happen. Can I can I tell this story? Of course you can. Yeah. So we're here. Okay, we have to go back in 2009. You know, I know Manius Norman. He was his coach, and he was first time 2009 in in ATP finals in London. So I was coaching Michael Bearer in Helsinki Challenger, and in the first round was Monday against Harry Continent. Michael had the match point, Harry played the slice. I saw it, I was this much out, so the match was over. We celebrate late, overrule. Uh, so the overrule, they called the ball in. So it was discussion, so Michael lost the match. But a match that he, he physically won, honestly. And then so it was Monday, say, we have Salzburg next week. Say, what I do these days? It was Monday, say, okay, there's ATP finals. ATP, as ATP member, I could go to watch this London ATP finals. You know, so for me, it's a great updating. So let's go to London. You know, I was able to get the hotel with the, with the players, and I was able to, to see this ATP finals. The first person I see in the hotel is Magnus Norman with Robin Soderling. Claudio, what you do here? You don't have a place. You know, I don't have, but... I take this this week as an update. It cannot be wrong, you know, to watch from close top eight in the world playing against each other. <laughs> and it's not possible to replicate this 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 week to for to a level of tennis. So I went there and, I, and Robin was with him. So I explained to him in front of Robin Sutherland. I explained to him. I came to update myself. I love I I love to be here because it's a unique situation to to see the top eight players play against each other, having ideas for the next year. To have like a full tank of ideas for the next year, and I took the chance of being an ATP member and to watch this incredible event. So only years later, 
and six months after I started with Robin, I, I never knew why he chose me because, you know, beside that, Bolelli played in Monte Carlo and beat him and uh, Suzuki played a great match against him in the US Open. So he didn't really know me. Mm. And, and that's, I didn't know him. You know, Magnus in that occasion, he introduced me to him officially, but he didn't really know me. And then he has, Robin explained to me, say, look, you remember when you went to London and we met? I was so impressed that you have one week time for holidays and you choose this week at the end of the season to watch tennis. So for sure you love tennis and you want to be better. It was, that's the reason why he chose me. And if I remember that the death ball was overruled, I have to thank this line judge to make <laughs> overrule to Michael. Because if, if he called the ball out, I was never going to London. Because, you know, it was the next match on Wednesday, it was, didn't make sense. And I was never coaching Southern. So I, the sliding doors, you know. So many, they talk to me in tennis about planning, you know, we have to plan, we have to plan, we have to plan. Sure, we have to try to plan, but you know that the things happen, the beauty, most beautiful things happen when you don't know, when you don't plan it. You know, that's, that's what I learned from that. And you just have to be ready and in good faith, do your best every day. You don't know what, when and, and how and with who this will re reward you, you know, to this commitment to loving tennis. So loving tennis in, in, as a player and as a coach is the only important thing that this, this is how the, you will reward and have uh, opportunities in your tennis life. Nice. So what was it like working with Sardling? Was it fun? Was it serious? Anything interesting? It was great. You know, it was very demanding, you know, because you, you feel that you want to work with you, you want to take from you a, help and, and the innovation element, you know, that is something new that he never had before. And, and I based my work on him and he liked that very much. He said, you know, Robin, we have to do things you never did before. You never be number one. So you need to do something that you never did before. And if you keep doing, you'll be number five. And after this great start, he, he, he moved to number four. You know, so one spot that he passed Andy Murray was not so far from Roger Federer. So we start the climbing at that, that level. The climbing is very slow, mm. but, you know, he was steady on that. He was incredibly honest, honest and transparent on showing, sharing with me my, his feelings. He was incredibly professional and, and make me feel the trust that he had on me to work together. I'm uh, very grateful to Robin for this experience that I was touching the feeling of, you know, try to prepare a player to go number one. And we had a really good start to do that. You know, there is no proof, but I, I'm really confident that uh, without the, the issue that you have af after with injuries and, and the disagreement, we had the reason why we stopped was that, you know, it was about the amount of uh, work that he's supposed to, to load his body I was afraid of injuries more than disease. You know, I was, I was afraid, you know, because he had a problem with Achilles. He couldn't play well on uh, India Wells in Miami. I, I thought that he shouldn't play Barcelona as real, but he wanted to play. But he publicly admit that he should listen to me. And but I'm not happy for that, you know. I'm not happy for that because he's a great man. He's a great person. People don't know him the way he is. He's incredibly intelligent, sharp. I'm more honored to be his friend as, as a person than to have been his coach. And, and I say that being very proud to be being his coach and uh, number four in the world. So it's, it's, there is a part of Robin people don't know, but I, I have the privilege to know that, that I guarantee you is a great man. That's this I can tell you for sure. So it was, was a great journey. And uh, there is the question mark what he could have done. In my opinion, he could have won a major. And if not number one, he could get closer to number one. For most of the time we was together, he was number two in the race after Djokovic that you had, had incredible year in 2011. 
but I mean, you you want to just love uh, all your journeys, whatever they went and what it was, it was. But you know, it's great, great memories, great, uh, great experience. Make me more rich as a person. Great. And who followed then after Robin? The coach was Fidi. He's a Swedish coach that he is a great coach. But unfortunately, after a while, they experienced that for Robin had mono. I mean, the story of uh, 27 years old, he had the mononucleosis, which probably started when, uh, didn't realize when he was still with me, but, you know, in Marseille with the blood test, but, you know, you have to be very deep research to find this, this bastard disease. And then uh, he was able to win one more major, one more ATP uh, title in Bostad. That's, that's the last match he played. He was killing everybody. He, was kind of, he, he didn't know, but he was his goodbye to tennis. But killing Ferrer Bertic, but one one, like scary, and like he knew that he was his last, his last show in his hometown. So it's it's incredible story. And but he was sick. And then after this busted, uh, he told me he was feeling so sick. He told publicly his story, so we can say that. And then he never played anymore because the disease didn't let him. He tried to come back many times, but he, you know, also a, a, a big role in all this story with Rob, with Robin is another person I want to mention is Ali Gelem, that he's one of the best uh, conditioning trainer in the world, and uh, he's a great friend, and uh, he was always with me. He, he agreed with me on all my ideas on Robin, and he was suffering that we, we had to. But I want to talk about this story like, as a beautiful story, human story, even if it didn't end well, and stays what he did. He's a great champion with two finals in the French Open. Everybody mentioned his winning against Rafa Nadal, beating beside Djokovic, the only one beat Rafa Nadal in the history of Roland Garros, and this stays forever. And Sweden can be incredibly proud of him, and now he's the Davis Cup captain uh, for a reason. So it's just, I want to emphasize the beautiful things of, of this story. You know, we actually had one of our most popular episodes was with Robin Sutherland. So if you're new to the podcast, check back on the Robin Sutherland episode. Really interesting. He really opens up. It's a great but sad story in a way, but Robin's getting on great now with his business and, as you say, with the Davis Cup captaincy. Yeah. This podcast is brought to you by ASICS Tennis. ASICS is a Japanese company founded in 1949 with the purpose of giving more people the opportunity to experience how sport and movement can have a positive impact on mental well-being. That purpose is also in their name. ASICS is an acronym which means Anime Sano Incorporate Sano, a Latin phrase meaning sound mind, sound body. Today, the brand is still dedicated to that founding belief of demonstrating the positive effects sport and movement can have on our mental well-being all over the the world. They just launched their most innovative tennis range ever, which includes the new Court FF3 Novak, the shoe designed from the ground up with the help of Novak Djokovic. Get your pair now at asics.com. But uh, so, okay, after you stopped working with Robin, who, who were the next few players you worked with and how did we lead on till today? Well, after Robin, uh, I had the privilege to call, uh, to coach Daniela Antukova. You know, I went back in the WTA. Daniela is a great friend. Uh, she was trained by Marco Panigi as a physical oh. trainer, which is uh, another of my pride on my on my tennis life. You know, because I'm the one who brought ten- Marco Panigi in, in tennis. You know, he was uh, he was out of tennis as a conditioning trainer. I knew his potential when I was coaching Anna Smashnova. I convinced him to go out of his job, which he was a policeman. So I was able to let leave the police, uh, horse police. You know, he's an expert of horses. You know, he was in Rome uh, going around with the horses, and and he's uh, always uh, very nice and and uh, recognized to me this idea, this intuition of having opportunity to have tennis world to have Marco Panigi in the picture, which now is 
physical trainer of Novak Djokovic. That time he was working with Anna, with Simone Bolelli, with me. We worked together 15 years. And then he had this opportunity to work with Daniela Antukova. She won India Wells with him. And then he suggested her to have me as a coach for her comeback. You know, she dropped to 34, which for her was, was much behind. And in 2012, after Robin, we had a great journey with Daniela, which is a great friend. And she was in the final in Brisbane the year that before Robin won. So I was close to make it <laughs> back to back. She lost to Kaya Kanepi in the final, but she beat uh, Kim Kleisters for first time out of uh, 11, wow. 11 matches. And was uh, very intense because I had to go on court. You know, WTA allowed the coaches at that time to go on court and talk with the camera, with the mic. Yes. There was stuff in the women's tennis. I remember I had a speech on uh, before the third set with Daniela. She called me on the court. Uh, I think she lost the second set, winning the first set. Uh, Daniela, the, the mind is stronger than the body because she was uh, tired. But she is also probably tired. Uh, and you want to keep uh, keep to staying close to the line. You know, keep uh, dictating and uh, make her move. That's what you're going to keep doing. And, and if you're tired, tell yourself that even tired, you can keep going because the mind is stronger than, than, than I remember exactly my speech than the body. So she did that. And after a while, Kim was also very tired. That was, you know, Australian summer is brutal. Mm. And then uh, Kim retired, you know, but I think uh, Daniela was there. But uh, okay, I'm, I'm happy I did this mistake because I put together these two great yeah. champions that I have the privilege to coach, Monica and Daniela. And I could use the experience with Monica to coach Daniela, and, and she beat another of my favorite uh, super champion ever, Kim Kleiser, which ad I admire in incredible way. I Last year I met her in Atlanta. I was, uh, I was coaching in Atlanta, and we did the photo together. So I was very happy to be coaching, uh, being part and being close to this, uh, such a champions in the WTA as, as a men's coach. Nice. And so moving on then, so after Daniela, where did the coaching world lead you? Yeah, after Daniela was 2012, I, my life changed because, you know, I met Christina, my current wife. She was working in ATP. So I decided to not travel like I did for 20 more years as a coach and, and 11 years as a player, 35 weeks per year all over, the, all over the world. You know, I think one need of being successful is the availability simply to travel for all your life. I, I did nothing but travel since I'm 14 years old. Also, you have to add the junior year. So I traveled for almost 40 years, you know. And uh, so I based myself in Pony Vidra Beach, uh, where there's the ATP at, uh, headquarters, where my wife Christina was working. Now she's not working for ATP anymore. But I decided to change my life to start to coach part-time. So I, I coached Bedene, alias Bedene. I was not the main coach, you know, Dear Cordov was the main coach. And, and I was supporting. So I started to do, I, I never left the tour, but... I start to have another activities in Florida. I found a company it's called CP Claudio Pistolese Enterprise. I discovered the college tennis. You know, I work a lot with college tennis. I opened the door, I think, to Italians for college tennis, not only Italians, but mainly Italians. And then from 2018, I have the privilege to be the director of, of this JTCC Florida location. I know you know JTCC College Park is one of the best organizations in, in the world tennis. I love it. And from day one, I love uh, Ray Bento, Vesa Ponca. They are, uh, you know, the leader of this organization. And I, I'm, I can say I'm a leader of this as well as, as a director of Florida location. So my life changed. You know, my coaching life changed. Moved from coaching, personal coaching stories. Moved to be a director of, of a school. And own a founder of, of a company that wants to give opportunities and to create 
uh, tennis culture, you know, voluntarily I call my company Enterprise, Claudio Pessoa's Enterprise, not Academy, you know, because I like better Enterprise give me the energy of uh, taking initiatives, not oriented to money, like Enterprise maybe can evoke, but uh, is, is about to produce tennis culture, you know, to put together tennis and education. So the goal setting of my life completely changed from uh, poorly hit the highest uh, level possible in professional tennis in the men's and the women to uh, have an impact on the growing life of young uh, kids with potential, with uh, being a good tennis player, yes, having potential to go pro, maybe, maybe yes, maybe not, but uh, utilize tennis for the life to become professional in other fields. I have many examples of boys that they didn't know anything about uh, college tennis. One for all is Mattia Ross, for example, is the number one of Denver University. He's, he's going to be an engineer. He's, he could be a professional player, but he was good enough in other fields as a student. So my life changed uh, from 2012 to 2013. I moved in Florida, I became a resident, and now... That's what I currently do. Yeah, the, the JTC episode, which is a few episodes back, is another great episode. That whole story is amazing. But you've been living in the States now, and I know you're from Rome. You say you're from inside the roughly the Vatican area. Do you miss Italy? Do you miss Rome? Well, if, you, if I think of my family, I think of my friends, I think of habits and the culture, I miss a lot. But professionally, I think is the, the human being... Uh, express himself through his job, you know, and, and I, I love to to do what I do. And uh, the recognition also, I can tell you in Italy, we say Nemo Profeta in Patria, no? The recognition you have in your own country, you know, very often at least, is not the same that you have in other countries. The recognition of my job, also I won the Orange Bowl in Florida and, and uh, in the United States uh, is, is higher. I feel more uh, uh, recognized for what I did, uh, which give me the tools to to help more young players, you know. So I have, I think, a big name uh, uh, for this field and, and uh, I just want to use whatever is in my power to, to, this is my mission of my life, you know, to, to give opportunities and to grow, educate young uh, boys and girls with tennis potential, but also with human potential. I was inspired also from my son, you know, it's my stepson, but he allowed me to call his son. It was the most beautiful day of my life that he was graduated. He was playing number one in uh, a USF, you know, University of South Florida in Tampa. I, he could have a chance for professional, but then he, he decided to go for uh, another career of management. He was uh, working WTA for years. Now he, he left and he has another job in the sustainability uh, field. So proud of him and he inspired me to look at this and other part of tennis world, which is a college tennis, NCAA, which is only in the States. And as I live in the States, I had advantage of living in the States and advantage of knowing many coaches. You know, the coach is the key figure in college tennis. And many, they play with me in the, in the 80s and 90s as a former players. Brian Shelton, I played against him. Now is the coach of uh, defending champion now of NCAA at the University of Florida, which is not so far from my house. So I, I was discovering another world, you know, from 2013 on. I never left the tour. I had the chance to, to keep coaching part-time. I was still coaching pretty consistently. Alla Kudryatseva, she's a champion from, from Russia. She did incredibly well, especially in doubles. She got two times to the final of WTA finals in doubles. And she won some good match in singles too. Then I coached uh, Marius Kopil. 
for a while, but not, not with the same intensity and, and timing and consistency that I, I did before. I coach uh, uh, Ante Pavic, that he went through some injuries, unfortunately, but again, it's a great story because we are great friends and now he's going to be a great coach. He just became father. He sent me the photo of his daughter just born. So there are things that uh, go behind the results, you know, that, that is uh, the, the human party, I think, is a foundation for any human activity. You know, the, the human part, the feeling, the, the human relation, the empathy, regardless the results. And now I have the I have really the the luck and privilege to be in the coaching team of Emil Rusuori and Federico Ricci is my friend. He's he's head coach. He's doing incredible job since Emil is a kid. And uh, one of the many things I did, I did the consultancy in Helsinki with the Jarko Emin Academy ten years ago, where Federico was the was the director, and uh, I know Jarko very well. And Emil was a kid, so I know I knew Emil when he was 10, 11 years old, and now. I was with him last year in Atlanta, in Washington. This year I was in, with Federico in Miami, a three-match point against Sinner. And soon I'm going to be again with him, supporting the team, supporting Federico and Emil job. They're doing an incredible good job. That's great. So you're still really invested in the in both end, the college end, the pro end, the junior end. But quickly, make, let's make some college and tennis. Something I heard you say before was, Berrettini, who I'm not sure of his current ranking right now, but definitely, what is he, six in the world, roughly, uh, at the minute. Yeah. I, I could be wrong now. But he was advised to go to college tennis, something I would have never thought. I know he's a bit of a later bloomer than the Zerevs of the world and, the you know, than some of those other guys. But tell me, what's your insight? What, who advised him to go to college? Why was he advised to go to college? And why did he not go to college? Well, it was 2014. I just arrived to America. We have to talk about Vincenzo Santo Padre. He's, he's a great guy. We grew up in the same club in Italy. He's three years younger than me. So I think he was looking at me a lot as a player and coach. That's, uh, he told me about this boy. So, you know, I have a boy 14. No, but it was not in the radar of Italian Federation. Nobody knew about him until 18, 19. He was a regular player playing prize money tournament in Italy. And the parents care a lot about the education. So Vincenzo heard that I was in America and I was start to be uh, working with colleges. And he called me, he called me, said, Claudio, you know, I have this, this play, remember, Matteo Berrettini is thinking what to do for his life after graduation high school. If you want to go pro or, or the parents like the idea that to take a look at the college tennis, can you help? So I started to ask around. I said, um, coaches that I will not mention the names, I will say, you know, there is an Italian guy that is, is good potential. I trust my friend, the coach, uh, and, is, um, and what is what is ranking, what he did. Uh, sorry, doesn't seem to have the level. We're looking for better players, but I understand them because Matteo was not, was not in, in, the, in the light, uh, under mm. any light that in this moment. But with with <laughs> looking what happened after, he would be the best recruiting ever. You know, it was he's number six in the world now, Wimbledon finalist. So now I probably guess they regret, but you know it was tough in this moment to decide. And and I was telling Vincenzo, there is not much land of scholarship here. They're not that much interest. They look for better players. That's what they told me. I I express that if you tell me that, and I heard about that, yes, something special. I tried, trust me, this boy is good, but you no, know, every door closed. And then uh, they saw him in television in the Wimbledon final. But, you know, these things happen, and, and, and this is very meaningful how there is no need of rush 
to be good in junior. You know, there is too much of this rushing to have the, the junior ranking, to go to play the, the junior uh, slams uh, just for the pride of it. This need to be too rushing is... Uh, I know when it started the tennis history. I know very well because I was there. But it's wrong. You know, each, each boy and girl, they have their own story. I believe that, uh, if you want to know, in 1985, when I was junior world champion, was Boris Becker, which is my age, that he won Wimbledon. Is he won Wimbledon junior? No, he won Wimbledon, Wimbledon. <laughs> he won the tournament. <laughs> so he was 17 years old. He won Wimbledon. They're not the junior, the, the big one beating uh, Kara in the final. And after two years, I was there again, 1989. After four years, Michael Chang won French Chauvin. 17 years old again so the perception was that you need to be early you know so agent parents agents sponsor federations press they start to ah 12 years old is already beating guys to 14 this was the wrong the the worst message possible because this rushing make forget the most important thing what the kids feels you know if they win a lot expectations is in the, their shoulder which is the the worst beast to beat the expectation so uh, and then you will see hundreds of potentially good players lost because of these expectations which i also felt as a junior world champion and so you have to be careful to create uh, this uh, the, the the word i like the least marketing world is a system you know especially the federation talk about system if they may they talk about milestone this milestone is the biggest sorry bs i can think of because each boy and girls they have their own story they have own timing they are growing physically and not only physically we cannot forget that so my message to players parents look the story of your boy or girl that is a tennis player and the needs he or she has he has a needs of yes practice of course get better physically yes but don't overdo it because you, you're exposed to injuries you know mm -hmm. you have to win yes but it's more important to win or to build in that age you want to have some confirmation that you're in the right pathway but everything is projected to the future for winning in the future and don't forget the happiness they need to be happy their kids their world is in front of them they are 14 15 16 years old let them be with with friends let them have their experience that other kids has let them study let's go to school the education is a big part also for tennis in my opinion how many times you're done okay let's let's stop going to school now there is an option to school online which is also fine it's not the same but you can still study online and and have hours extra hours the typical question i get how many hours do you practice in your but you know, don't go by the quantity. You know, we try to hit each tailor-made job for your son or your daughter. You know, I think that's very important to forget about the milestone, about uh, if he doesn't have this ranking with his 16 years old, uh, forget it. That's not true. There are incredibly hundreds of stories that prove wrong this uh, fake theory of the milestones. You know, let them grow. The timing they have, the body timing is different of growing somebody i remember richard kreischek i heard that he was a, was a short guy until some age and then all of a sudden he grew 25 centimeter and he was 195 and he got one of the best serve in the world he won wimbledon but just the first pop up in my mind but i can give you so many examples of different timing of growing until they're adults then we talk about results you know maybe the girls they grow up earlier the boys later 
the board. That's why college is so important because from 18, out of junior, out of high school, until 22, 23, you know, you don't want to force it. We was forced. That's why the average was 20 years old. Now the average of top 100, I think, is 29. And the girls, yeah. it's much higher than before. So the timing of growing is incredibly important. This is my message to all tennis world. You know, don't forget the happiness, the joy. Too much of a sacrifice, suffering, too less of joy and happiness in tennis. That's important. And I'm going to end this with asking, you've, you've obviously played a lot of great players as, as a junior, as a senior, and you've coached great players and coached against great players. But something I've been asking a lot of guests now is, who is your... Goat, your greatest of all time player. My goat is this period of time of uh, 99, 2000, when Roger Federer stepped into the picture. Many think he is the goat, but then uh, came Rafa Nadal that beat him, and they start to win 13, 13 the French Open. I get, I get crazy only when I think about that. 13 US Open. You know, we have uh, players that won. You know, for me, Guga Querten won three times French Open. Was Incredible already. And this guy won 13. So, and then he won two Wimbledon. And then he's coming Djokovic. <laughs> he won a ridiculous number of weeks, uh, number one in the world, the one with most time, number one in the world in the ranking, uh, winning another 20 majors. So it's impossible to say one of these three. I think my goat is the combination of Federer, Nadal and Djokovic, not to be diplomatic, because this is the truth. You know, if you say Nadal, there is a but. Yes, yes. Maybe Nadal because he's, he won he won the most most major. But Djokovic is the one with the most number one. And then Roger he he has for sure records that is even difficult to keep the track. So the three of them, uh, if you say one of these three, you know you don't want to also start this Nadal uh, supporter against uh, Federer supporter. They start to to insult the. The, the social, this is bad part of the social network, they start to fight. No, Djokovic, no, Nadal, no, because Federer, yeah. they start to insult with each other, is, is sad. So I want to say the, the, the period of time that with these three playing together, which they're still doing, hopefully Roger is back for more tournaments, is my goat. You know, it's tough to beat. We see Alcaraz now maybe has a chance to get close to them or, or sooner, but we don't know. It would be nice to see. I want to mention Pete Sampras, as I said, because I think he belongs very close to those. And I want to mention Jimmy Connors, you know, one, one of the biggest experiences. I played him in, as 19 years old in the center court in uh, US Open, full stadium. And I played over three hours against him. I gave him a hard time. And uh, I lost the match, many matches that stay in your heart after you know many years doesn't matter anymore you won or lost you know the zero matches and was great recognition and connors is still the one who won most titles so i also mentioned jimmy connors for this for this purpose i had to be a, a, a little bit wider range than one name because it's impossible <laughs> to say one name your tennis experience spans quite wide so you know but claudio thank you very much that was very interesting you've had a, a great tennis career long may it last yes thank you it was a great pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Nothing better than share as a coach, you know, and this makes me grow to share. And I really thank you so much for having me and all the best to have great tennis to all, everybody can listen to this podcast. Thank you. 